Wow, wasn't that good? Uh, I appreciate our worship team so much and, and uh, just the, the way they lead us into the Lord's presence. I, I, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10 with me, and, and let me just kind of set things up today. First of all, I want to begin just with a quick announcement. Last week, you know, we honored uh, Chuck Bridge. Chuck was rotating off our elder uh, board, our elder team. And uh, the way we do things here is when we bring somebody on, you affirm the whole elder team. And uh, just so that you know who the elders are, you can always, uh, you, you know most of them, but um, Randy Owens, Mark Hegel, uh, George Lee, Sean Hood, myself, and then Dale Ream is going to come on as an elder. And uh, next week, uh, you'll be able to affirm that, and we will, uh, you that are home, you will be able to affirm that as well. And uh, I'm excited about Dale uh, joining us and, and what he brings to the team. And so uh, you will be able to affirm that next week. Just wanted you to, to be aware of that. And last week, we started a new series called Breaking Down Walls. Now, let me kind of give you where this came from. I, 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 I'm not the only one whose heart's been heavy during the many things over the last month, uh, two months. I mean, we, some of you are going to say five months back to the virus, and that, and that's part of it. But, but uh, I mean, just the division uh, that comes and the division that is there. And uh, I went to the elders uh, a few weeks back, and I just said, I really feel like we as the body need to come together in a commonality and uh, we we need to pray, and we need to pray earnestly. And many of you probably received your email today about the first day of prayer. But uh, I'll be speaking more about this, but we're entering in, beginning today, with the seven days of prayer. And uh, our webpage, I'll, I'll, I'll bring you current on that in just a little bit. But uh, we're, we're talking about breaking down walls. Today, we're talking about breaking down relational walls. And... Uh, I've been, I've had the privilege of going to countries all over the world. And, um, uh, through our missions program here, I've got to go to a lot of places. Just Pam and I have got to travel. And, uh, it's a blessing everywhere we go. But the more impoverished the nation, I see these all over the world, but the more impoverished the nation, I see certain things. And especially down in Haiti, when we go down to Haiti, they have what's called compounds. People live in compounds. Now, a compound is a gated, walled area. All the land is walled in, and there's a, a house that's there, usually a guard at the gate, and it's there to protect so that other people can, can, cannot come in. And so they have these compounds to, to save everything. Uh, like I've said, I've seen variations of this all over the world. But, you know, we have compounds here in, uh, in, in Round Rock, Texas. Many of you have a compound, and you're thinking, oh, I don't have a walled-in area. Let me tell you, most of you have something similar to this. This is a garage door opener. And what I've seen in our day is people driving to their homes. They, uh, you know, about a half block away from their home, they start pushing the button, even though you've got to be closer. And then they finally close, uh, push that button, and the garage door goes up. They drive into the garage door, they push the button, it comes down, they go into their house, maybe into their backyard, but as far as relational 
even geographical relations with those around them have become minimal. Now, I know we live in a day of quarantining and that kind of stuff, but you know what I'm talking about. We have our own compounds today. We protect our stuff. We protect us. We, we just go and we do these things. And, and, uh, and so we're seeing relationships as shallow as they've ever been. And then we look at the divisions that have come in our nation. There are, um, there's different walls, relational walls. Let me share some of them with you. There's economic walls that exist between the haves and the have-nots. There's the gender walls that exist. There's the church denominational walls. There's the class walls. There's the generational walls, the young and the older. And we, we even create walls by giving certain um, uh, uh, generational titles. And thus we, we label there's racial walls that is, exist. There's unforgiveness walls that exist. And I want you to know Jesus did address this. And we're going to look at it today. So in Luke chapter 10 is where I'm going to read in just a moment. But before I read Luke chapter 10, you back up into Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9 verse 51, the scriptures tell us that Jesus now sets his face to, to go to Jerusalem. And we think, what's the big deal? He knows once he gets down there, the religious leaders are going to take him. They're going to turn him over to the Romans and he's going to be crucified. So everything that happens after that point as he sets his face to Jerusalem is of utmost importance, both the activity and the words that take place. And so this is where we're headed in Luke chapter 10. It, uh, we pick it up in verse 25, and it says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer here, just so that you know terminology, is not the person you go get a contract driven, uh, uh, written up, or the guy that's going to uh, represent you in court. The lawyer, he was a law of the Moses. Uh, he was a study of the law of Moses. And he would know the law and he would, he would know the law inside and out. And he's coming to put Jesus to the test. Literally, hear this. He's coming to debate Jesus. He knows the law, man. He knows the Old Testament scriptures. He knows them backwards and forwards. And so he's coming to Jesus and he feels like if I can debate him, you know, that's the way political candidates try to do. They try to get the upper hand in a debate. He's thinking, if I can get the upper hand here, I will silence Jesus, make him look silly in front of his followers. And if anybody can do it, I can do it because I know the law. And he asked an incredibly great question. He says this. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, that seems like a great question. But let me tell you, his motives were completely off base. And notice he says, what must I do? We'll get back to that in just a moment. But what shall I do? In verse 26, Jesus said to him, all right, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, you're the guy that knows all the law. Okay, you you tell me what it says. So the guy kind of puffs his chest out and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. You're, you're a great student here. Do this and you will live. 
You've answered correctly. You've answered your own question. Just do it and you will live. Now, what went through that guy's heart and mind all of a sudden was deep conviction. He knew he couldn't do that. He knew he couldn't uh, love God fully. He knew he couldn't love his fellow man uh, uh, perfectly. So in verse 29, it says this. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let's define the terms here. And he's wanting to justify himself because he knew he didn't measure up. So he wants to justify himself. You know, we all try to justify ourselves. When we're caught in a trap and or we're caught into a lifestyle or caught into a sin area or caught into uh, an undisciplined area of our life, we start making excuses. Uh, let me give you some thoughts. Um, first of all, we we uh, we start comparing ourselves to other people, don't we? Well, I, if I am better than you, say I may have a problem, but if you've seen them, you know, we make this justification. Or here's another one: we look at our good deeds. Ah, you know, I got a blind spot here, but look at everything I do here. You know, and we start, we justify ourselves by looking at our deeds. But the third one is what this guy did. He sought to lower the standard. In other words, reinterpret the law. When Tiger Woods went through his fall with his ex-wife and he just kind of went off the rails, literally in his terminology, not using this terminology, but, but he said, basically, I thought I was above the law. And so we try to reinterpret. The law. And that's what this guy did. And we go on. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, Passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus comes back to the present day. Which of these three do you, Mr. Lawyer, think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The guy's caught in his own web. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you... Go and do likewise. Man, it just cut the guy to the heart. Jesus is so incredible in how he turns the argument, this debate, which ends up being so short. A guy was so sure of himself, and all of a sudden things get turned back on him, and that's where he is. I want to talk about the different characters in the story just for a few moments. We'll, we'll push the robbers aside a little while. But I want to talk to you about this. And first of all, Jesus says, amen. Amen. He, he was traveling down the road. He was on the road and, and uh, he got taken over by robbers. He was left half dead. 
But we know nothing about this man other than the fact that an injustice has happened to him. I mean, I thought about it. Was he a religious guy or was he not? Uh, was he, was he educated or not educated? Was he, um, wealthy or was he a poor guy? What about his race? Was he Jew or Gentile? What was the color of his skin? We don't know. Was he a moral guy or an immoral guy? What about his sexuality? We don't know anything about his sexuality as he is there. Was he physically or mentally challenged? Maybe he, he had a problem. Uh, <clears throat> was he an Aggie or a Longhorn? We don't, we don't know what he was. Maybe he deserved it. Did he deserve this, that being there? Was it his fault for traveling alone? There's a reason that Jesus does not let us know about this man. He represents all men. And that's important for us to understand. We don't know what, what he was, was like, but we know he had a need and an injustice had occurred. So when Jesus turns this story, he's attacking the mindset and a hard heart that had developed within this lawyer. What about the priest and the Levite? These two guys come by. A priest would have been somebody who works in the temple. A Levite was from the tribe of Levi that assisted the priest. I put them together because they were both religious men. Hear me. They were good guys. It wasn't like they they were uh, antagonistic guys. These were good guys. Uh, but as a Jew, they could not touch a dead body or, or both of them would be unclean. So here's this guy. It, it says he's half dead. He's half alive too, but maybe he's mostly dead, like the Prince of Bride. And, uh, he, he is, he is half dead there. And so the, the priest and the Levite walk on the other side of the road because they don't want to be unclean. I believe they had pity because they looked at the guy. They had pity, and uh, but pity was not enough. They probably felt guilt and conviction, you know. When they were walking away, have you ever felt that guilt and conviction? I should have stopped, but I didn't stop. And you have this guilt and conviction that comes in. And they made, they made all kinds of excuses. You and I make excuses. When, when we get that nudge from the Spirit of God to do something and we don't do it, I, I thought about some of the excuses that maybe these guys use that I've used before. Uh, maybe they were busy. Man, they were tired. They'd put in a, a day's work or weekend's work or whatever. They needed to get home to see the wife and the kids. They were just busy. You know, I'm just busy. Or someone else will take care of it, you know. We leave it to somebody else to take care of it. Or they thought, maybe it's a trap. If I go over to, the, to this guy, maybe the robbers have hung around and they're going to take me out too. Maybe he deserved it, right? I mean, this guy, he put himself in harm's way. Maybe he deserved whatever happened to him. Or this excuse, I just don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. I believe these guys made excuses just like we make excuses. And, and they, they are there to try to justify ourselves a little bit, but I believe these guys made those excuses and Jesus does not, uh, honor them in any way in the story. But then there's the Samaritan. Now, 
I want you to understand a little bit about the Samaritan, because we use the term good Samaritan all the time. Somebody helps somebody on the side of the road. Somebody carries somebody's groceries are. We say, man, they're a good Samaritan. But you need to know what a Samaritan is and was. Uh, the Jews hated and despised the Samaritans. I mean, it was racism in on steroids. They could care less about the Samaritans. But here's where the Samaritans came from. You see, the, the land of Israel used to be divided into uh, two sections. The bottom southern section was called Judah. The northern tribes were what they called Israel. Well, Israel turned their back on God, and the Assyrians came down, and they took over the northern part, and they took over Israel. They took the most affluent, the most educated, the most influential people out, and they took them back to Assyria. And what they did with the uh, the poor, the uh, the almost the throwaways, if they left there, and they took people from other lands they had conquered, and they brought them, and they resettled them there with their culture, with their religion, and everything. And what eventually happened is they began to intermarry, and uh, they 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 became a half breed type of people, not a pure breed anymore. And so the Jews saw even those that were God-fearing, but they were intermingled, that they saw them as dogs, basically. They had, I mean, it was an incredible racist picture. And uh, uh, when Ezra came down there, I'm, I'm, I may challenge your Bible a little bit, but when Ezra went down there to rebuild the temple, what uh, what what happened is the Samaritans came to Ezra and said, we want to help rebuild the temple. And the Jews told him, no, no way, you're not clean. So they went back and they built their own place of worship at a place called Mount Gerizim. And so the Jews despised the Samaritans. There's still about 800 Samaritans that exist today in that area. We, we had the chance to go there. They are a very, uh, group that's very proud. They really believe they have the, uh, official religion. They still use the old Hebrew and everything like that. But this is why they hated them so bad. The Jews could not stand them. So for Jesus to use a Samaritan in the story is almost a slap in the face of this lawyer. But the Samaritan is the one who had compassion. Now, pity is feeling for somebody. Compassion is putting it into action. You're going to do something about it. And Jesus is simply saying in this story, you need to hear this, anyone who has need, regardless, is your neighbor. Regardless of wealth status, color of skin, gender, moral compass, anyone who has a need, regardless, is your neighbor. And then Jesus turns it back and he says, which one became the display of being a neighbor? And the guy had to say, the one who showed mercy, the one who saw the need, met the need. And Jesus just nails it by saying, you go and do the same. That's Jesus' challenge for us today. You go and do the same. I want to make three quick points that I think are going to lead us into this week of prayer, and especially during this time in which we live that is so divided. First thing is this, to love your neighbor 
is to love God. Uh, when, when somebody says they love God, oh, I just love God, that's subjective. I mean, Jesus said, whoever loves me will keep my commandments. But how many times do we say, oh, I just love God? Maybe we love what God has done for us. We have an emotional attachment to, to, to God, the way we know him. And when we say we love God, that's, that's subjective. It's hard to measure exactly what that means when somebody says they love God. But when somebody says, you know, I love my neighbor, that becomes objective. That becomes um I am doing something, I'm keeping the commands of Christ, I am doing something that's objective, and when we do that objectively, we are loving God. And John, in 1 John chapter 3, let me read this to you right quick. In 1 John chapter 3, John has written this letter to these people, and this is what he says beginning in verse 16. He says, by this we know love, that he, being Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. To love God is to love other people. It's just the way it is. And when we, sh- when we love other people, we are actually loving God. But remember what Jesus said. Your neighbor is, is whoever has need, regardless. You see, we like to be selective in who we love. We want to love the people like me. I want to love the people that are close to me. But what Jesus is saying is, you love all men. You love all men, women, children. You love them all. I remember uh, uh, Bruce Larson wrote a book many, many, many years ago. And I was young in the ministry and I read this book. But there was an illustration that Bruce Larson used that I'll never forget. He said that he was on his porch daydreaming. And his daughter was riding her bike around the driveway. And he said he had this daydream that a car is coming down the street and his daughter had lose control and go out into their street. And he goes out and he pushes her out of the way at the last minute and the car hits him. He was having that daydream and then all of a sudden his daydream shifted to a little runny-nosed boy down the street who always throws rocks at his dog. And he had the same picture and he said, would I push him out of the way as well? And what Jesus is saying, listen, your neighbor is anyone that has need. And to love them is actually to love God. Second point is this. To not love our neighbor, we either don't know God or we don't love God. To not love our neighbor, we either don't know God or don't love God. Francis Schaeffer who many of you have heard of before, I remember reading, he said, he said, if we do not love our fellow man, it shows our fellow man that we do not truly know God or we do not truly love him. And that's this point. Do we love God? If we don't love our neighbor, then the world is going to say that God either does not exist or they don't believe in him. And the third point is this. To love our neighbor will take time 
energy, and resources. To love our neighbor will take time, energy, and resources. We've already taken a deep breath and say, oh God, you gave me that breath. But are we willing to see all of the the resources he's given us as a gift from him that are be used for his glory? I think that what God is trying to do today, he's trying to, in this day of division, he's trying to wake up his church. And I know what some of you are thinking. Mark, you, you're, you're telling me to love somebody that's not like me. But what about, what if their sexuality is different? What if their morality is different? What if, what if their philosophy is different? What about these things? You know, Jesus doesn't care. He says, love them and take care of their needs. And I know what you're afraid of. If me and my family or my kids hang around somebody like that, then they're probably going to rub off on us. Let me tell you something. You will rub off on them. And that is where we live today, and the church needs to repent. Because you love on somebody doesn't mean you approve of their lifestyle. But you love them and meet their needs. So, what are we doing? I want you to think about this. Who is the group? And and I know I'm going to ask this question and somebody's going to be super holy. But who, who do you really have a prejudice against? I mean, I know somebody's going to say, I love everybody. Probably not loving me right now because of what I'm saying. But what about the person who has really screwed up? What about the person who doesn't look like you? What about the person who has just done something atrocious? Listen, I am asking you to do the impossible, and that's why the Spirit of God has to do it through us. Jesus knew he was asking the impossible. If we don't have Jesus, there's no way we're going to fulfill this. So we're entering in today to a time of prayer for seven days. For you that are on the central email, you received your email today. But we're going to pray for seven days. Today we're praying about the virus and all that it has um Created the turmoil it has created over the last five months. We're praying in that end. Monday, we're praying about racial relationships. The next day, we're praying about repentance for sins and injustice. The next day, we're praying for schools and education. The next day, we're praying for churches and missions. Next uh, Friday, we're praying about leaders and authorities. And next Saturday, the last day, we're going to pray for families. And I'm asking you to fast at least one day during this week. Now, uh, I, I put a little thing about fasting on our, our webpage, but fasting can be food. It can be doing without food for a day or for a set period of time, or it could be, I'm really challenging you, to do without media for a day. That would be harder than meals because you use media right through meals. Maybe maybe that would be your challenge. In other words, make your flesh uncomfortable as you cry out to God. Now, when you get to our webpage, 
This is what you get. Now, you got an email today that can push you that direction, but this is what you get right when you hit our webpage. At home, same thing. You hit it, and it's there. And then what you'll do is you'll daily go to the areas. There will be a video, today's video Brett does. There were some prayer points that we would encourage you to pray, but there's other things the Spirit of God will give you to pray. We give you additional actions that may help you in your prayer, to prayer walk, to drive to a hospital or something and pray, uh, look for a business, you know, that's been affected by COVID and pray. You can social distance or it, some of you will get with your small group and go and do these things. I would, I just can't encourage you enough about doing this. And we're asking God to open our eyes as we cry out to him. I, I, I see, and I know people ask me all the time, Mark, what do you think about all these days we live in? Do you think these are the last days? Uh, I think we're always tempted to think it's the last days when I believe it's the day when God is calling his church to repent. And he wants to come back for a pure bride. And we have stuck our head in the sands on a lot of things, and God gets our attention. Well, Mark, don't you, did you think other things? Listen, I may be wrong, but I don't think I am when I read the scriptures. So as I wrap this up, I think there's three philosophies that come forth, and I want to share with them with you real quick. One is the robber philosophy. What is yours is mine, and I will take it. And the the man is someone to take advantage of. The religious leader's philosophy is, what is mine is mine, and I will keep it, and sees the man as someone to ignore. The Samaritan's philosophy is, what is mine is yours, and I will share it. And he sees the man as someone to invest in. And the man asked the question, the the lawyer asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Everybody's asking that question. What must I do? That's what makes faith difficult. It's not difficult in, in the process of believing. What is difficult is we think we have to do something to earn it. And in the book of Romans, chapter 7, the apostle Paul is speaking and he's talking about this wretched state that his his uh, flesh is in and he can't do the right thing and he tries to do the right thing and he says this in Romans chapter 7 verse 24 he says wretched man that i am this is paul wretched man that i am and then he says this this is his question who will deliver me from this body of death Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He doesn't say, what must I do? He says, who? Who will set me free? See, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot do this without Christ. Have you ever bought a, a new car, maybe new to you, and, and you go and you pick the car out on the lot and you're thinking, that's us, man. That's the only car like that out there. It's unique to us and our family. We're going to get that car, and, and we're going to get that silver car. It'll handle all of us. And I don't think there's another one on the road out there like it. And then you drive it off the parking lot, and you start seeing silver cars 
everywhere. You're thinking every car is silver. Well, what's happened is that the mind has been triggered to see silver because it was so important to you to see it. My prayer this week and from now on is that our minds would be so re-triggered that we will see men, all men, as Jesus sees them. And we will love them as our neighbor. Listen, I believe God is stoking the church right now. And he's calling us. He's calling us. He's beckoning his bride to arise. I want to ask the praise team to come. And I want to pray over us. I want you just to bow your heads with me just a moment. And let me, listen, hear me with your head bowed. You don't want to hear this message. We, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to preach this message. Because I see how far short I've fallen. I, I think I'm not prejudiced. I think, I think I love all people until the shadows of my heart are illuminated. And today we're praying for God of all creation to shine his light in our hearts. So that we may see people, all men, as he sees them. Because greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. Father, I pray right now, God, in all intensity and earnestness, Lord, just for you to bring conviction conviction to our hearts. Lord, whether somebody is sitting at home in their living room or they're sitting in this worship center, God, call us to be more like Jesus. May your Holy Spirit so indwell us that we don't care what other people say. We're going to be like Jesus. So, Lord, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Please. Let's stand, church, just in an attitude of prayer. Let this time be the Holy Spirit's time just to Seal in you what he's speaking right now. Maybe you need to begin by repenting of any prejudice that you've been having or fear you've been having of truly loving somebody or judgment, judgmental spirit. And let's pray for God to speak to us now. for you.